Welcome, oceanographers, to a new episode of Circuit Court Entertainment. If this is your first time on our voyage, our first mate would like to remind you that we look at all sorts of entertainment, such as books, games, theme parks, movies, and other things, and examine them from a legal and historical perspective. Because, honestly, it's really interesting. I'm your captain, Mina, and today we are looking at the twice-failed attempts at adapting a profitable action book series to the screen. Put in your life jackets. We got some rough waters ahead. In 1973, a new pulpy action book, the first in a never-ending series, hit shelves. Written by a man named Clive Cussler, it's called either The Mediterranean Caper or Mayday. It used both titles on different editions. This was when readers would meet the daring oceanographer and ex-Air Force, later retcon to Navy, hero Dirk Pitt. Dirk was the perpetual adventurer, never sitting still and always finding new things in the ocean that could cause villains to chase after him. The book's formulas would start with a flashback to something in history, maybe cut to something a bit more recent, and then to the modern day as Dirk and his crew find a wreckage or investigate something in history, then chase villains who plan to either steal the wreck or use it to do terrorism or otherwise fight against American interests. As action, shootouts, reoccurring characters, and intricate discussions about oceanography. In fact, I listened to one of the audiobooks before writing this episode, and hypoxia, or the part of the ocean with naturally little to no oxygen, was a major plot point. The books had action, some romance, a naval spin, history, sold really well. So, why did it take so long to make the jump to screen? And if the Dirk Pitt novels have such a huge base, why is Indiana Jones our idea of the research adventurer? Like many of Clive Kessler's novels, the beginning is farther back than you may think. In 1976, the Dirk Pitt novel Raise the Titanic was released. As all the books take place in roughly present day, this novel details a Cold War-era missile defense program, the needs of MacGuffin, basically something just used to move the plot along, to run. Unfortunately, the only known sample of the MacGuffin was in the Titanic when it sank. So to get the MacGuffin, Dirk Pitt has to raise the Titanic. The book consisted of mostly that, but did have a subplot about spies which climaxed with Dirk getting into a shootout on the now-raced Titanic in the rain. In 1980, the movie was released. It was a colossal failure. It made $7 million at the box office, but cost $40 million. Adjusted for inflation, it made roughly $26 million on a $150 million budget, and cost more than The Empire Strikes Back, which debuted the same year. Five million of that budget went to making a genuinely impressive 50-foot scale model of the Titanic based on current theories. But not the tank they needed to film it in, or the transportation, or the fact they needed to build another boat, renovate it to look like a decayed Titanic, and then film on that boat. Or what to do with it besides just leave it in Malta after filming until it rusts, despite the fact it should probably have been donated to a museum because of how technically impressive it is, and at the time, the Titanic had not been found in the ocean. But there were non-model Titanic issues plaguing the film, too. For example, there were 17 writers petitioning the WGA for script writing credit. While the actual number of script writers can vary depending on the film, 
17 is way too many for an adaptation of a book that is mostly on the ocean and that more or less cut out the spy subplot. The director was only changed once, but a change from the celebrated Stanley Kramer, who directed Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, to Jerry Jameson, who mostly directed episodes of shows like The Six Million Dollar Man and Murder, She Wrote. Due to time, lack of access to physical copies, and Hollywood tending to keep these kinds of numbers secret, we don't know how much went to everything else. But going by its roughly $40 million budget by the end, this movie wasn't cheap. In fact, Lou Grade, who brought the Muppets to the small screen and was, and was played by Orson Welles in the Muppet movie, is quoted that it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic, and the failure of this movie forced his retirement. Clive Cussler said, I'm not looking for a blockbuster motion picture, but I'm hoping for a production of quality, more of a classic than a run-of-the-mill car chase with special effects explosions every five minutes. Dear oceanographers, I watched the movie. There were no car chases. There were no explosions. The closest we got was an off-screen implosion of a sub. The spy subplot was resolved off-screen two-thirds of the way through the movie, and pretty much the only time Dirk is on land, it's mostly for an ex-girlfriend telling him to his face that she didn't realize how good she had it, plus a few small bits of government officials being interviewed or looking at documents. The raising of the Titanic scene is genuinely impressive, and the score is considered one of the masterpieces of the composer, Academy Award winner and James Bond theme creator John Barry. But the movie itself was quickly forgotten by the general public. Rotten Tomatoes gives the score at 38% for critics and 29% for audiences. Clive Kessler swore off Hollywood, and Indiana Jones arrived on the scene one year later in 1981. And then, all was quiet. Sahara, the book, debuted in 1992. Raise the Titanic got a VHS release in 1994. And in 2001, Clive Cussler got a knock on his door. Philip Anschutz, noted rich conservative, friend of Rupert Murdoch, and oil rig owner, was interested in making a jump to movies. And more specifically... He is quoted as saying he wants movies to be entertaining, but also to be life-affirming and to carry a moral message. And quite frankly, the Clive Cussler books were what he was looking for. He had recently bought Regal Cinemas and was looking for some movies he could produce and play in the theater. He had just created Crusader Entertainment, which has since split up into Walden Media Bristol Bray Productions, and which would eventually make movies like Holes and The Chronicles of Narnia and Anschutz had the money to make Clive Cussler listen. $10 million per an adaptation, with two books guaranteed, and a very broad final say clause. Well, how could Clive Cussler pass this up? You remembered what I said in the beginning about how Clive Cussler's books often use historical events and foreshadowing for the modern-day sections? The deal was signed in 2001, and in April 2005, Sahara debuted on the screen. It cost $160 million, and its box office was $119 million. It starred Matthew McConaughey as Dirk, Steve Zahn as Dirk's best friend Al, and Penelope Cruz as a WHO, World Health Organization doctor and love interest, Eva Rojas. One second. The story had Confederate ships in Africa, gold, mysterious diseases, explosions, Molly warlords, relevant in 1992 when the book came out. 
flawed and corrupt recycling plants, and the climax was our leads firing a cannon from a Confederate ship at a helicopter. It was intended as a mid-budget summer tentpole action movie with a franchise. Dirk had been in 17 books when the deal was inked, and by the time it came out, there was now 19 books. But if you know anything about budgets, $160 million is not mid-budget. In fact, its intended budget was $80 million. And if the deal was signed in 2001, why did it take until 2003 to film? And then not come out until 2005? And why am I not giving a quote from Clive Cussler about how much he liked working on the film? Yeah, things got messy. For starters, casting quickly became a nightmare as the studio and Cussler clashed over who played the leads. Cussler shut down people like Tom Cruise and Hugh Jackman for not looking enough like Dirk. Penelope Cruz was picked over Selma Hayek as not only would she cost less, but they could get tax breaks for filming in Europe. And once the casting started, they also had the script to write. Ten writers and $3.8 million later, they got a script. Yes, ten writers is also a lot for this kind of movie. One of the main hang-ups was how Clive Cussler kept using his script veto over pretty much everything. It drove up the script writing times and prices, drove scriptwriters away, and eventually production allegedly let him write fake scripts they had no intention of shooting just to shut him up. And then came the filming. Two million dollars, less than Titanic model before inflation, but still quite a bit, was spent on a single scene of a plane crashing in the desert that Dirk and Al find partway through the movie. It was cut for pacing in post-production. Product placement was proving a hassle. For example, Jeep was giving them $3 million. And even if it was for the plot, why would they pay $3 million just to see the car get stuck? Actors got other kinds of bonuses, general other costs and fees added up, and that's not even mentioning the bribes. Yes, bribes. But before we get to the bribes, if you got this far and started wondering how I know this much, since it, didn't I just say Hollywood accounting is kind of hidden and convoluted? After all, the actors and writers were slash are striking over this kind of thing. And many movies like Forrest Gump and Men in Black have been cited as running a net loss, despite being wildly successful. Return of the Jedi also makes it onto this list, despite making $475 million on a budget of $32.5 million. So why am I talking about bribes and have actual dollar amounts? Well, you see, Clyde Custler was not happy with how this movie was being made. Despite having more control than in Raise the Titanic, everything was repeating the footsteps of that movie. When Clive Custler was promoting his new book, The Lost City, he started disparaging the film, causing a few of the product placement people to pull out of production. His complaints ranged from Al being more comic relief to how certain scenes from the book were cut. His complaints ranged from Al being more of a comic relief, to how certain scenes from the book were cut, to complaints about the writing and the dialogue itself. Kessler sued, claiming they had lied to his face about the control he was supposed to get on the film. The production company countersued Kessler for breach of contract. They claimed Kessler was allegedly blackmailing the production to use his script over the others. He disparaged the movie on his bookstore, was difficult to work with, didn't use his veto in good faith, and inflated his book statistics. I won't go into the details beyond it, because it gets very messy. 
It's full of unverified but harsh accusations and needlessly would drag too many people through the mud. But because of it, they had to submit memos, budgets, and many other items to court. And then someone leaked it to the LA Times. The LA Times released a partial breakdown of where the money went, several of the memos and emails, and gave everyone one of the best looks at what a modern movie's budget is in Hollywood. And in it, as a line item, was bribes. Just to clear things up, paying a bribe is not, under circumstances, illegal. If you are in a location where bribes are seen as a cost of business, it's fine to pay the bribe and report it on your expenses. Paying the amounts that Sahara did for items such as political donations, hastening tree removal on a fort, and to hold off on a sewer upgrade project because it would interfere with filming, the point where bribes are a line item in accounting, that's not allowed. The production has denied it, and as far as I can tell, no one went to jail, but it's still not something you would normally see on an accounting sheet. The movie, when it finally released in 2005, made number one the week it came out, then dropped. Rotten Tomato lists the critics' rating at 38% and the viewer rating at 53%, matching the critics' ratings for Raise the Titanic. It did decent in DVD sales and on TV, but it was never going to make back the money, especially with the lawsuit going on, let alone make a profit. By the time the case settled in 2012, it was a wash. Court said no one owed anyone money. Crusader Entertainment had been split up into Walden and Bristol Bay. Hustler died eight years later, and Sahara still pops up on TV. Everyone involved is either still acting or otherwise doing their jobs. I found out about Reese the Titanic almost by accident. While writing the story, I felt that the fallout of the movie felt like the opening to a Clive Custler novel, the historical prelude that sets the stakes and scene. That fallout warned of doom and destruction for those who did not heed its warnings. And despite trying to avoid a repeat of Raise the Titanic, I'm not sure whether or not they did save themselves. Thank you for listening to Circuit Court Entertainment. If you found this episode interesting, please tell others as this is a new podcast. Please subscribe on all the major podcast services. And you can find me on Twitter at CCEPod. This episode was written, edited, and recorded by me, Mina. The script was edited by CJ Peterson. Podcast art by Empress Cirque on Twitter. Thank you for your time, and I hope to hear from you soon. Bye.